0: Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere, it is in the center of everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the Center of Everywhere. My name is Julie Tesch, and I am the president and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. The Center for Rural Policy and Development is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit policy research organization dedicated to benefiting Minnesota by providing its policymakers with unbiased information and evaluation of issues from a rural perspective. We're really glad that you've joined us today. And today our guest is Scott McMahon. He is the Executive Director of Greater Minnesota Partnership. Welcome, welcome Scott.
1: Thank you, Joy. It's great to be with you today.
0: Yeah, I think back to we chatted last year at this time talking about preview of, of what session was going to be and, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. So this year should be really entertaining.
1: You know, this is, uh, this is a session like nobody has ever seen before. When you look at, uh, you know, the unprecedented budget surplus of $17.6 billion, which I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about today. Uh, when you have the reality of single party control of the executive and the legislature, which we haven't seen in a decade, um, and when you just deal with the the realities of of uh, you know rural issues versus metro issues versus state issues, you interject national politics and global politics in this. It's uh, this is one for the record books.
0: It really is, and on top of all that there, you can go back to the Capitol or state office building or Senate office building and actually meet with people in person.
1: You, you can, um, it's still a little bit closed down as of today, uh, Thursday, January 19th, the Senate or the state office building where the house of representatives is, is still mostly locked down, but word on the street is Uh come Monday, those office doors will be wide open. And, uh, the public of Minnesota will be wandering all the halls of government once again.
0: I I feel bad for the staff at Senate office building or state office building because it's, I can imagine it's going to be a madhouse.
1: It will be, um, although it's still, uh, it's not as busy around the Capitol as it was pre-COVID. I think a lot of people have adjusted their ways of operating and so it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of how things go once we're back to true normal again?
0: Sure, sure. I know one of the things I appreciated about, I mean, not COVID, but one of the effects of COVID is just being able to watch everything online. I mean, before I would go on public television and watch sessions, but now I was able to go on, I think it was YouTube and watch. And then I was also able to testify from my farm, you know, which is Julie- great.
1: That's, frankly, one of the most important things that's happened for greater Minnesota. Um, And it's better in the Senate than it is in the House, just because of the way technology is between the different office buildings. The fact that, you know, you can be in International Falls or Pipestone or Winona and zoom into a legislative hearing and provide your 10 minutes of testimony, rather than having to drive five hours one way to testify for 10 minutes and then turn around and drive back home for five hours it really opens the doors a lot more for greater Minnesota stakeholders whether they're city leaders, county leaders, business leaders, community leaders, to be able to engage and participate in the legislative process in a way that we didn't have pre-COVID. So if there's one good thing to come out of a global pandemic, it's the ability for our rural folks to be able to engage in government in in a more effective way. Yep,
0: agreed, agreed. And before we get too deep into anything, I want to quickly mention that we have really good news in our state of rural that we are just releasing. And believe it or not, I know, I know you probably know this, but rural Minnesota saw a growth in population between 2020 and 2021. We've heard it antidotically, but the, the data finally shows it. I mean, it's not by a huge amount, but we grew from 2021 and it, it's just pretty fantastic.
1: That is great to hear, and, uh, and anybody who has been in the market to buy a uh, lakefront property over the past couple of years <laughs> can bear witness to uh, the population <laughs> changes. Uh, you know, I think we have seen uh, seen our, our Minnesotans take advantage of technology and a different work environment and realize that it may be better, uh, better life quality living in uh, in some of our greater Minnesota communities versus the Metro and some of their work situations. So we uh, we welcome anybody who wants to think about uh, work-life balance in a different way to take a look at all corners of Greater Minnesota for what might be the right opportunity for them.
0: Absolutely. It, you know, antidotically people have been asking me that and I'm like, I can't say anything until the numbers are out. And it, it's really nice to hear because that hasn't happened for decades. And so, uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be touting that quite a bit and how greater Minnesota is growing but let's jump into this 17.6 billion dollar budget surplus like I can't even wrap my mind around it um but let's just start with child care I mean I, I saw the governor's you know budget came out yesterday with child care and whatnot let's talk about like what are we gonna see do you think
1: you know, I think we're going to see some pretty big investments in child care. Um, you know, one of the things that we know is that child care has been underfunded for some time. And I think the work that you all have done to highlight what that has meant in greater Minnesota has been transformational. Um, you know, I look at the report that, that Julia, your colleague Marnie put out uh, sometime last year, looking at uh, the the family care licenses that we've had and the decrease over the past 20 years you know a lot of that's just driven by our lack of ability to keep uh, to keep pace with the economy on our programs whether it's the child care assistance program or our scholarships and so right now we are our child care assistance program which funds you know our our lowest income families to be able to afford child care access child care in order to go to work um is basically around the 30, the reimbursement rate for that program is around the 35th percentile for, uh, for the market rate. So to put that in layman's terms, if, if the market says it's hundred dollars a week for childcare, that childcare providers, uh, state reimbursement is $35 uh, for that week for that kid. Federal guidelines say that that should be 75%. So we're nowhere near where the feds say we should be on that. And the governor's proposal that came out this week uh, moves us up to that 75th percentile. So that's a huge impact on uh, our ability for our child care provider. Well, let me step back. If it goes through, that'll be a big impact on our child care providers to actually generate the revenue that they need to run a profitable business. End of the day, we need to keep in mind that our child care providers are, are businesswomen uh, and they're trying to provide a, a economic engine for themselves and their families. And if they can't, you know, generate enough revenue to cover their costs, then it doesn't make sense for them to be in the business, which is why we've seen a significant exodus of childcare providers in our communities. If we can reverse that trend and create a system where, you know, our providers can, can earn enough revenue to cover their expenses and to pay, uh, pay themselves a, a, Wage that makes sense, you know, we'll start to get somewhere. So, I'm excited to see, you know, the conversation around that. Uh, obviously, the governor's budget will have sympathetic ears in uh, in the House and Senate with DFL control in both of the, those two chambers. So, you know, we'll see where things go uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months for the overall budget. But even this week, you know, the House uh, is passing legislation to put money into child care yet yeah, this biennium uh, to try and deal with that revenue side of things. So there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack, uh, but there's, um, there's some interesting things uh, being discussed at the Capitol right now on that front.
0: Definitely. I, I'm glad that things are finally being discussed. Um, you know, we were, like you alluded to, the CRPD was kind of the canary in the coal mine about five to seven years ago bringing up how childcare is lacking everywhere, but especially in uh, rural areas because they rely on family childcare. And it's it's nice, it's heartening to see that people are using our research like yourself and other organizations and legislators. And it's like, I'm really proud of Marnie, our, our researcher who's worked on this because she's being looked at as an expert in this. And it just goes to show that CRPD information is Good information to use to make good policy. And so I'm excited to see some advancements and some ideas. You know, I've been asked by several legislators the last couple of years, like, well, what do you want us to do? And I'm like, well, I gave you the research, we gave you recommendations. That's up to you. I you go. So I, I, I'm excited to see that there are some ideas. I'll, we'll see how they pan out, but excited to see the, the enthusiasm, at least.
1: Well, and, and you're absolutely right that that work you, you all did you know, seven years ago or so has been a, a game changer in the conversation of the capital. Um, and one of the things that we've been able to do with that research is link it not only to the impact of what happens when we're now at 42,500 childcare slots short in greater Minnesota, uh, but then what impact does that have on our employers? You know, too often we hear employers, you know, especially in greater Minnesota, when uh, when a lot of the times, uh, especially at this, in this day, when we've got low unemployment, when an employer is trying to hire a new employee, more often than not, they're looking from outside the borders of their, of their community to find that person. And when you're trying to recruit an employee to move someplace, if you don't have things like childcare or housing accessible for them, then that employee can't take that job and relocate to a 3 River falls or an Owatonna or a Laverne, um, and that research that you all did uh, back uh, in, I think it was 2016, you know, really was the catalyst for changing that conversation on the Capitol and, and building it out into, uh, into something different. And I'm actually excited. Uh, the governor's education budget came out this week. And one of the proposals that he has is a new uh, position in office at the Department of Employment and Ecom- Economic Development focused in on child care to be that touch point between our business community, our local governments, and our state government uh, to figure out where we go on child care. Because, you know, one of the things that we, that we face is that, you know, child care is an important issue, but it's housed in the Department of Human Services. And that's not a state agency that our employers or our local governments tend to work with versus deed is one that they work with on a regular basis. And so the realization that maybe we need to embed those resources for our uh, external partners in an agency that they work with more regularly, maybe one of those things that has a pretty big impact on things going forward. So I'm looking forward to the conversation on the capital around the value of some of those different reforms that, that may come out this session.
0: Yeah, I was excited to see that too. I, I think there's a change going on. Thankfully, people realizing that childcare providers are professionals. It is a business. They're not just quote unquote, babysitting. You know, it's like there's a lot of education and development that goes on and it is a business. And so I'm glad that people are taking that seriously. Uh, Let's talk about broadband kind of like, uh, you know, I was late to this podcast because I have really unreliable rural internet. And uh, I'm on my phone doing this because the internet is not great where I live, but there's a lot of money coming into Minnesota on broadband. Where, what are you seeing? What are you thinking?
1: You know, I I still think we're a national leader from the standpoint of uh, being the early creator of the border border broadband grant program that we have in Minnesota, which has been replicated in other states across the country. We've had a great tool that can absorb both state financing and federal financing, which we've seen a lot of through uh, the COVID stimulus bill that have come out of DC in the past two years. So we have a good tool at Deed uh, to be able to get those dollars out in the communities that have the impact that we need to have uh, going forward. You know, the reality is all of our conversations with broadband in Minnesota are focused on obtaining our 2026 goal of having all properties connected to broadband service that has, uh, that meets true uh, high speed definition, which in today's numbers would be uh, 100 megabytes per second download by 20 upload. Um, 2026 isn't that far away. You know, when we're setting the budget right now, we are looking at the fiscal 24, 25 years for the state. And so 2026 is just past that horizon. So, you know, we know right now how many properties are either not served by uh, broadband period or that are underserved by service that doesn't meet that 100 by 20. And so we know precisely what needs to happen this session in order to to hit that 2026 goal. It's just a matter of whether or not, you know, we can get it done. But when we've got $17.6 billion plus an influx of money coming from the feds, uh, there's really no reason why we can't, make the investment today to guarantee we hit that 2026 goal by let's hope 2026. Now, the one issue that comes into play here is we know that we still have supply chain issues in our economy. And so the big question becomes, can we obtain enough fiber uh, over the next three years to hook up all of our properties that still need connection to fiber? And are our do our internet providers have the ability to ramp up the service for places that are on broad, that are on fiber, but still don't have that 100 by 20 service?
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting because where I live in Southern Waseca County, uh, I'm on satellite internet. It's, I don't even wanna say it's adequate. It works, but doing a podcast or webinars is difficult. And we're excited because BevCom Communications came in and they are applying for state funding for uh, border to border, but then also using federal dollars to bring uh, fiber to, I believe it's 200 households. Like So our southern two-tier townships in Minnesota or in Waseca County, it's a small area, but I give them a lot of credit for taking it on because that's what it takes is a local provider to take that on and our county commissioners have approved it and we've done surveys and now now we wait and we'll see if they get approved with their grant but you talk about supply chain you know the people I've met with they're like this won't happen until 2024 at least because you know they already have their projects in the bag for this year and ordering products and supplies so we'll still be dealing with sketchy internet here for another year or two but at least there's things happening.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, a couple of comments and reflection on that, Julie. Um, you know, often I have heard that, you know, we don't need to hardwire all our properties, that satellite different technologies can handle it. And I think back to uh, when I graduated from grad school and we bought our first house and we were debating between cable or satellite service and we opted for satellite. And then I was sitting in my basement watching college football on a Saturday afternoon and it started snowing and my dish filled up with mm-hmm. sticky wet Minnesota snow and all of a sudden I couldn't watch football anymore. Yeah, um, <laughs> And that's when I decided I'm going <laughs> to stop that and I'm going to, you know, contact the local, uh, broadband server and, and get, you know, lined, uh, line cable service. And we've been with, them been with them ever since. And, you know, that's, those are the realities from, it, from a technology standpoint that we, uh, that we deal with in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But the more important thing, Julie, that you hit on is whether it's broadband, whether it's housing, childcare, you name the issue we have in, in greater Minnesota, those mm-hmm. issues are best resolved when we can deal with it at the community level. Uh, when we have community yep. partners, uh, and they can be big partners, they can be small partners, but when when our partners have a vested interest in our community, that's when we get the best results on on the outcomes of the of the challenge. Um, and that's really where the innovation of Greater Minnesota comes into play. I see so much great energy and creativity out in our communities trying to solve whatever these big problems are. You know, how do we get more housing built in our communities? How do we get more child care? How do we address this this broadband problem? How do we deal with workforce issues? The amount of of creativity and innovation that we have in all corners of greater minnesota is just super exciting to see happen
0: absolutely it i feel like there's a new energy in, in greater minnesota just in my little area just talking to people people are excited about housing studies and childcare studies and like they really want people to move to greater minnesota which I would say a few years ago that they weren't probably as excited. It was like, ah, eh, whatever, we're fine. And so I, I feel, I feel a lot of energy.
1: You know, Julie, I, yeah. I think that all credit for that is due to the Center for Rural Policy and Development and the Greater Minnesota Partnership. I think we're doing our work. We're getting word out there about what all is great in Greater yep. Minnesota, um, and people are starting to listen to it. Um, but I think you're right. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of positivity. There's a lot of excitement. Um, and I think, you know, people are starting to appreciate and be more aware of the community assets that we have, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, the high quality of life, the lower cost of living, um, the, the greater sense of community that we have in our, in our smaller cities, you know, there's just a lot to really hang our head on in greater Minnesota.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for the compliment on our research. We you know, we, we love doing it. And, and thank you to, to you all for, you know, Greater Minnesota Partnership for what you do and getting our research out there. And it's been fun meeting new people and new organizations that want to use our research. And yeah, compared to four years ago, when I started, you know, it's just, it's a different world. It's, it's kind of cool, actually, you know, and I tell my staff a couple times, I'm like, we might be the cool kids now, like in rural, because there's a lot of opportunity, you know, so not used to that.
1: Well, and, and you know, it's been interesting, you know, obviously COVID was a hard time in greater Minnesota. Um, it was a hard time yeah. for our manufacturing base, our ag base, as we think through, how do we how do we keep making and growing and producing the things that we do when, uh, when our factory environment was impacted by a global pandemic? Um, how do we deal with our main streets when, you know, everybody knows that the coffee shop and the pizza parlor and the bar in these smaller communities are, are the lifeblood of, of so many of our places, you know, when they were shut down or, you know, in, in a number of cases when they couldn't make it through the pandemic, uh, it was, it was a rough couple of years, but, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing more storefronts open up in greater Minnesota. Uh, we're seeing the customers come back. We're seeing the tourism. Uh, grow and become, you know, a continued great aspect of of our communities. And so there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurship that's happening. I think there's a lot of community dialogue about what's, what is the future of community X Uh, and, and coming together to to chart a new pathway for, uh, for what greater Minnesota is going to be, um, for anybody listening to this, uh, the restaurant options that we're seeing come into greater Minnesota are phenomenal. Um, the amount of, Mm -hmm. you know, new farm to table restaurants that we have opening up in you know, communities like Mankato down to, you know, communities like little falls, Um, everywhere, every community you roll into in greater Minnesota, you're going to find a phenomenal meal if you stop by and poke around and see what's going on in that community. So I'm excited about what uh, the next three to five years is going to have for our, for our region.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I had someone in Mankato the other day asking me about if we had any good Thai restaurants. And I'm like, ooh, we do not have, I don't think we have Thai, but I know some Vietnamese and some other new places. And so it it is exciting having those, those new places. Let's move on to uh, healthcare and EMS. We did a report last year on rural EMS and the lack of reimbursement dollars, the lack of workforce, the lack of everything. And it was it was good to see today that they had a press conference at the Capitol today bringing those issues up, and hopefully they're going to be working on some policy there. But Gosh, in rural areas, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, when you call 911, you, you definitely want someone to show up. But in rural areas, that workforce is dwindling, obviously. Um, and then you put on top of that, uh, you know, you talk about Sanford and Fairview potentially merging it. This whole healthcare issue is, is just kind of ballooning almost out of control. What do you think?
1: It is, and you know, it's a challenge. Um, you know, we just adopted a new policy a year ago, focused on rural healthcare and emergency medical services and recognition that this is an emerging issue. Um, and it's one that we need to try and figure out what it's gonna be, you know, end of the day, whether you live, you know, in a densely populated area or a sparsely populated area, um, human beings are going to have heart attacks and you should be able to make sure that you have that emergency response when it comes through. Uh, First off, it needs to start with, you need to make sure that when you pick up your phone and you dial 911, that you can get through uh, to contact the services that you need. And then you need to make sure that on the tail end, there's somebody who can drive that ambulance to come uh, take care of you when those medical needs arise. Um, And it's becoming harder and harder and the economies are so different than they were 10, 15 years ago on that front that I think Fundamentally, we need to rethink how we go about providing those services. Um, you know, it's, it's today a lot of it is on the the local government side or the local community side, and and those things are changing. And you know, the importance of things like local government aid uh, and dollars going to support communities for their critical needs are becoming more and more important. Um, but, you know, my concern from the Greater Minnesota Partnership standpoint as an advocacy group focused on building up our economies is, you know, right now I hear employers talking about the challenge of recruiting new workers when we're lacking childcare or housing. But I don't think we're too far away from, from employers having a hard time attracting workers when workers are saying, well, what's my access to health care when I'm around here? Where is the nearest hospital? Where is the nearest medical clinic? um what's the what's the 911 response rate um if i have a heart attack am i going to be able to survive you know can the care get to me mm-hmm. i don't think we're at the point yet where employees are looking at those questions but they're definitely coming uh and we need to be able to make sure that uh that we can respond to it um you know, I, I know there's a lot of consternation and, and conversation in the media about the, the Fairview-Sanford question and, you know, what does that look like for, uh, for greater Minnesota? Obviously, Fairview is heavily in the metro. Sanford is heavily along the, the western border of the state. Um, but then you've got interesting conversations like the uh, what's coming out between Centricare and St. Cloud and the University of Minnesota. About expanding right. uh, the University of Minnesota's medical school into the St. Cloud area and focusing in on rural healthcare opportunities. So, you know, I, I think uh, folks are starting to think strategically about what this is going to mean and how we get after it. But you know, I need to thank uh, the center for raising this issue and creating more awareness about it.
0: Yeah, it it was such an interesting topic to research, and we we ended up having roundtable discussions with the Minnesota Ambulance Association. And those roundtables were very well attended, but it they were so thankful to have a light shed on rural EMS. You know, Because just like everyone else, every other industry, people are retiring at a faster rate. And what do we do? And so uh, I, I'm excited to see what they start doing at the Capitol. And again, not to toot our own horn, but to toot our own horn that is another example just like child care where our research has been used to influence policy to hopefully make good
1: policy so absolutely I like to
0: give ourselves a pat on the back for that
1: well and, and you know throughout like a couple other issues tied into this one you know in addition to the ems service you know we've got some critical challenges in greater minnesota around access to uh, psychiatric care as it's needed uh, access to, uh, addiction care and interventions when, when they're needed. Um, and so, you know, all of these things are things that we as community leaders, uh, need to keep at the forefront and keep talking about and looking for, you know, what's the future on, on all of them.
0: Yeah. And let's round out the topic discussion, talking about rural housing, it, it, it kind of reminds me in a way of rural broadband, it's everywhere and nowhere and people just don't quite, depending upon the community, they don't quite know what to do. They know that they would like to have more housing, but developers aren't willing to come in and it, the right doesn't know what the left is doing. What are what are you seeing and what are you hoping for this session?
1: You know, I think, um, I think the three big things we're gonna see significant investments go into this session, are going to be K-12 education, childcare, and housing. Um, Now, the question around housing is where does the money go and what is it used for? And the reality is there is a housing continuum. Uh, And whether you're in the metro or in greater Minnesota, we have issues with all of them, whether it's homelessness, affordable housing, uh, market rate workforce housing, or senior housing. And we need to make sure that we're putting uh, appropriate... Attention investments into each one of them. Uh, from my perspective, and the perspective of the Greater Minnesota Partnership, one of the biggest challenges we have in Greater Minnesota is that uh, market rate workforce housing. So the housing for uh, you know the new nurse, the new teacher, the new uh, machinist coming in to work for the factory that's making a good wage, uh, but doesn't have you know ten years of savings built up to put a down payment on a house and, and move in. Um, but yet make too much to qualify for the state's uh, subsidized affordable housing programs. And so, you know, we're putting a heavy shoulder into just creating more awareness about this need for workforce housing, Um, whether it is homeownership or uh, in more cases for that, you know, starter career person, uh, you know, rental opportunities as they kind of figure out and build up their nest eggs. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot of, a lot of things happen. I know the house has already started moving some bills around, uh, to help with some down payments on, uh, on first generation, uh, homeowners. And I say first generation from the standpoint of the first in their family to, uh, to move into a home ownership situ- situation. Um, but, you know, as we, as we talk with folks out in greater Minnesota, you know, the two things that we hear the most about needing in our communities are uh, our workforce housing focused around multifamily rental opportunities and then single-story slab-on-grade houses, you know, to move mom and dad into when the three bedrooms upstairs isn't the appropriate house for them anymore so that we can get mom and dad into the appropriate housing for them and bring the house that they've lived in for, you know, 50 or 60 years back into the marketplace for uh, for an emerging family who's coming into our communities to, to move into. And so, you know, we'll be working this session uh, to raise the awareness on these issues. Uh, I have to thank again, sticking with the theme of the research you all do, uh, your report from 2018 on uh, housing in Greater Minnesota has been an, an instrumental and impactful one in the Capitol, really laying out the challenge that we face in Greater Minnesota, which is, you know, one and the same for both single family and multifamily is that the cost of production of a unit of housing is more than uh, the appraised value or the rent value of that property once it's done. So how do we, you know, throwing out numbers here, how do we deal with producing a new uh, a new single family house is gonna cost, you know, three and a quarter to build, uh, but the bank's gonna say it's gonna appraise a 250 once it's done. Well. You know, that's just upside down at that point. So how do we go about getting new housing built uh, when we deal with a marketplace in greater Minnesota that's as as upside down as it is right now? Um, You know, I think there are opportunities with grant programs uh, to help uh, offset some of those costs. Uh, We're working on an innovative project uh, that would provide grants to uh, local communities to help cover some of the public infrastructure costs of new housing development. So, you know, if you expand your, your community's borders and you're gonna do a new housing development, you need streets, you need sewers and those things. And so if we can get uh, resources for the local community to cover those costs, not pass them on to the developer, who then doesn't pass them on to the to the consumer of the property, we might be able to bring that uh, that end production cost uh, more in line with what the marketplaces and our support and get more Uh, get more housing built. Um, You know, I'm excited about what's going on in the manufactured home marketplace. Mm -hmm. I I keep thinking back to, you know, when I was growing up in the the 80s, what a manufactured home looked like versus a manufactured home (laughs) today. And and the reality is, if you put a manufactured home today next to a a traditional stick-built house, Nine times out of ten, you can't tell the difference difference between those two houses. Exactly. And so, are there ways to get yep. more manufactured home developments coming into uh, our greater Minnesota communities, taking advantage of uh, lower production costs or economies of scale from that standpoint?
0: Absolutely. You know all all the cards are all the chips are on the table. So I'm I'm glad that again I'm glad that the legislature is taking this seriously. I remember a few years ago when the housing housing was in with the agriculture committee in the Senate, which was just the craziest thing. I'm like, this doesn't work. And so, it's nice that housing is being taken seriously, and especially rural housing. Um, closing out our time here, two quick little thing, quick little things I want to mention. Um, what do you what we have we have obviously the trifecta of the DFL and the House, the Senate and the governor. And I I hate that it's almost come down to the DFL is urban and Republicans are rural, but unfortunately that's getting to be that way. What, what can we do to help our friends in, you know, urban areas understand greater Minnesota better?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the one of the most important things that happens um, is just exposure and creating the awareness. One of the things I love the most about the capital is the capital investment committee, the bonding committee, um, the committee that makes investments in long term assets for the state. Uh, One of the things that they do is they hop on a bus over the course of the year. And they travel around the state. They'll, you know, if it's the house bonding, they'll have the GOP and the DFL members of the committee on a bus and they'll, you know, take a week and they'll go do Southwest Minnesota and they'll stay in a hotel and stay in the communities and, and learn about the projects that have requests in those areas. And I consistently hear from legislators how rewarding of an experience that is to get out and, you know, kind of kick the tires on, on these communities, get more exposure to them. Um, you know, the, the reality is greater Minnesota, Minnesota as a whole, but I'll put this in, in the context of greater Minnesota is a huge geographic area. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is Northern Minnesota and our timberlands are very different than Southern Minnesota in our, in our farmlands. And you don't really have an understanding of what the totality of Minnesota is until you get out there and experience it. Um, you know, even me as somebody who deals a lot with greater Minnesota, every time I get into a new community I haven't been to before, I get a deeper and broader understanding of what the state really is. And so I think if the legislature can find more ways to uh, to get out and and experience all of Minnesota, we'll be better off. You know, one of the things we're going to be talking about this session is, hey, how great would it be to have uh, some uh some housing hearings out in our communities, whether, you know, could we get some, get uh, one of the two housing committees up to Roseau or Thief River Falls to learn about what the housing crunches are there uh, down to Wyndham to hear what's going on down in Southern Minnesota. I think that's when you start to realize what these challenges are and get a deeper understanding as to both the challenges and the solutions. Um, So we'll see, but it's, you know, it is, uh, it is a reality. You know, one of the things that uh, that came out of this last election and, and, you know, we have always been a purple state. And we still are, even though we have one party control right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the house, out of the 70 DFL members, we have 11 who are from greater Minnesota, but of those 11, only three represent districts where uh, where we grow things, uh, whether it's up in the north and they're growing trees or down in the south growing crops. Um, and it's a similar situation in the Senate with the 34 DFL members there. There are six from greater Minnesota uh, and there are three that have, uh, that have an agricultural base in their communities. And so, you know, we need to figure mm-hmm. out how to create a deeper understanding uh, with the metropolitan legislators about what greater Minnesota is and, and how our challenges are different Well, they may be the same, you know, the Twin Cities has housing issues, the Twin Cities has childcare issues, but they're Mm -hmm. different in greater Minnesota than they are in the metro.
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because obviously we we want our metropolitan friends to to learn about greater Minnesota, but us in greater Minnesota need to learn about the metro areas and issues they face too. And so it's, we, we have a discussion series with the Citizens League called Interconnected. And it's interesting what we learn from each other, you know, whether it's childcare or healthcare, um, you know, you think about rural healthcare, somebody in an urban area isn't as concerned with distance and how, how are they going to get a ride where around in rural areas, you need to know somebody with a vehicle to get to an appointment. And so, yeah, just that, that uh, learning from each other and listening. And I will say those bonding meetings, when they come out, they came to our little town of Waldorf of 200 people a few years ago and that was huge. And we had a, a major sewer and water system issue and they were attentive, they were appreciative. Um, they were really wanting to learn. And so I firsthand experienced that. So it's pretty cool. So I'm glad they do that. One final question for you. So May 22nd is the is, is the date for the goal for the legislature to be done. Do you think they will be done on May 22nd or not?
1: Well, I'm booking a, it's vacation. a crystal ball. I won't hold you to it. <laughs> I'm going to book a vacation for May 23rd. So they better be done. Um, no, that they, they will be. <laughs> No, it. it it's going to be a bumpy road between now and the end of session. Um, but there there's really no reason even when we have divided government not to get the work done on time. Uh, and I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a big pressure for them this year in particular, given that it's one party control that if you can't get your, your work done by, uh, by your deadline, then, you know, it makes people question, you know, whether, whether or not you should be in charge of governing to begin with. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, $17.6 billion is, is an enormous amount of money. Um, But when you look at all the priorities that are on the table, uh, you know, we're probably going to have $34 billion worth of ideas there. And so (laughs) it's going to take some time. And out of that 17.6 billion, a lot of it is one-time money Uh, and you can't spend one-time money on ongoing cost situations. And so, um, it's going to take a while to work through this whole process, but I think, I think end of the day, we will have a budget passed by the end of session. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get into, into campaign mode and all of our legislators will go back to their district and talk with their,
0: Jeez, yeah. about
1: you know, what they did or what they didn't do, or the Republicans will talk about, you know bad decision the democrats made and the democrats will talk about you know obstruction efforts that the republicans had and you know it'll be traditional minnesota politics
0: <laughs> more of the same oh gosh well i'm glad you're optimistic i'm optimistic as well it the next few months will be bumpy and we definitely need to check in here in the spring and, and see where we're at um what, what's been going on I, I just looking at deadlines you know the last committee deadline is what April 4th I think so Mm -hmm. between now and then that's it'll be interesting so yeah well thank you for being on with with us today it's always a pleasure having you on and like I said I let's reconnect here in the spring and see where we're at Um, you know there's always surprises so who knows what's going to happen
1: well I appreciate the opportunity Julie and I am ready and willing to come on anytime you want to have me and give uh, give the lowdown as to where things are and what's going on. But, you know, this year, unlike in typical years where we do a lot of work for four or five months and then in May we pass a bunch of bills, um, we're going to see a bunch of bills passed in January and February. So pay attention to local media mm-hmm. and statewide media and and stay up to date as to what's going on because there's there's a lot of big decisions being made immediately this session uh, in different, which Very is true. different than what we've seen in past sessions.
0: Very true, that's that's a good note to end on. Yes, pay attention early. <laughs> so, all right, thank you again, Scott, with Executive Director with Greater Minnesota Partnership. Always wonderful having you on. And for those of you that are subscribers to our Center of Everywhere podcast. Uh, We will be releasing podcasts every two weeks now throughout the spring. So make sure you download those. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere.